You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Senator Bill Frist. Welcome, Bill. Good to be with you. Bill is a renowned heart and lung transplant surgeon who, after a very distinguished career in that line of work, was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1995, served in the Senate for two terms, 2007, in the period 2003 to 2007, majority leader of the U.S. Senate. We got involved in 2001 when Senator Bill Frist and, and Senator John Kerry agreed to join and co-chair the CSIS Task Force on HIV AIDS that we organized and ran for the next uh, several years. And you co-chaired that until you left as majority leader, for which we're really, really grateful. In that period, you had some pretty amazing legislative achievements, not the least of which was the 2003 passage of the PEPFAR legislation, but also the, the Medicare Modernization Act. You were incredibly busy on the Finance Committee and HELP. Senate Foreign Relations Committee is chaired the Africa Subcommittee for a period, as I recall. So we're delighted to have you back with us here today. You also served as a trustee for a period of time at CSIS. Can't neglect to mention that. Let's start with a focus on you personally. Catch us up. Like, what's your life been during the last period, the last year of, of SARS-CoV-2, the pandemic? What have you been doing? Oh, man. First of all, it is great to be with you and with our, our listeners today to reflect a little bit and look at look ahead uh, as well. And I, like everyone, have radically changed my life and in many ways uh, for the better. And it's been a tough time and a challenging time. Personally, we have escaped death in our family or immediate family and unfortunately do know people who have died from this pandemic. But on the flip side of all that, and I'm, I'm sure we'll come back and talk about some of that, I've really refocused my life a, a lot around nature, and it's really been interesting. I have a farm that I live on now that's about 20 miles outside Nashville in Williamson County, and that farm, it's about 20 minutes from work, so I go back and forth. But on that farm, I have a um, 1846 farmhouse. We have horses and chickens and goats and donkeys and, and dogs. We have a river that runs through the front yard, the Harpeth River, and through the side and bisecting the property is a, a stream. I've done interesting things there in addition to just being around the animals with my wife, Tracy, and we have another farm up in Virginia that's, that's similar. But we've done things like created an arboretum. And so it's not just nature and not just being outside and not taking walks and the mindfulness end of it, which has all been part of it, but created now we're up to 75 trees on our property that we've identified and have educational groups come out. So a lot of hobbies like that. I have the farm up in Virginia and this has been about three months there and working out of there, very similar, but a larger farm in Appalachia, sort of deep Appalachia, southwest Virginia in a place called Craig County. Is this near Big Stone Gap? Uh, close, close by, close by, a little bit, a little bit north, and uh, it's a beautiful area. Mm -hmm. And there, looked at rural health. We're in a little town called Sinking Creek, and Sinking Creek has about 400 people in it, and it's called Sinking Creek because of all the limestone creeks that just disappear. Physically, I don't know about about you, but I gained 
probably 10 pounds over the last nine months. And, and starting January, I've gotten on it and lost about 14. So I'm on the way. And I, my, my January resolutions are still playing in there. But, you know, thinking about all that, the, the positive has been built around nature, being outdoors, the mindfulness, the lowering of the blood pressure, the balance in life, the work-life balance. You feel it all when you're walking through those trails and riding those horses in southwest Virginia and rural Tennessee. So you really took advantage of that rural solitary opportunity that you had. Yeah, and it gets translated over to a real interest in climate change and policy. You, you know, with, yeah. just with my history of policy, I, I'm on the board of the Nature Conservancy and vice chair of that board, which is the probably one of the largest environmental organizations in the world now, and spend a lot of time there focusing on climate and climate change and the intersection of that with health. And so I'm, as I'm walking those farms, I'm constantly thinking about big policy issues that are existential and they're challenged to us like climate change. That's great. That's great. You've been very vocal in this last year about advocating for a mask mandate. It's been a controversial issue in Tennessee. You've been vocal about expanded testing. You got on that very early, as I recall. And you've urged political, elected political leaders to speak the truth to their citizens, which is, you know, a clarion call in this particular time in which we've had just a proliferation of falsehoods and misinformation and the like. I'm assuming your concern is really about the decline of public trust and confidence, which for science, for public health, for medicine is so essential. Just tell us a bit about what prompted you to step out like that. You know, it's, it's very market. It's very, it's very visible. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question because I spent 20 years in medicine and the last 10 doing heart and lung transplants and operating on individuals and never had thought about running for the United States Senate, ran for the Senate, won, served in the Senate for 12 years. And there you have the platform. You're in the middle of the policy. You're 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 actually looking broadly, you're talking on it, you're communicating every day. And then for the last 12 years, I've been uh, in the private sector doing a lot of nonprofit work, but very busy in the business world as well. And you don't have a natural platform. And even though I, I've been doing my podcast in, in health and policy, it's called a secondopinionpodcast.com, do that every week. So I've, I've been out there. But when COVID hit and the pandemic hit, and there were policies that were underway that I thought were absolutely wrong. When the issue, as you said, of trust, which is so fundamental to me, to being a doctor, to walking people through a heart transplant, to walking them through, through the life after a, a heart transplant, the chronic disease that has created a better life and a life that you can enjoy, but still it's a chronic disease. And then even in the Senate, while there, there was a real feeling it was the same sort of trust necessary that base it on facts, base it on science, base it on, on what's best for a person, but also a community. You mentioned the era around 2000 when it was working with, with you and CSIS around the early days before PEPFAR, before HIV was, it was a domestic issue, but it wasn't a global issue. And and that commission that we did with CSIS and John Kerry, and I did co-chaired that, became sort of the platform for PEPFAR. It did uh, later. But about that same time, I was the only doctor in the Senate. Remember, I went in 1996. So the only voice of 100 people in that body who had ever taken care of a patient, who'd ever had that sort of trust we just talked about of one-on-one. Of -on -one. I was the only scientist out of 100 people in the United States Senate when I got there. 
I didn't realize all this before I, I ran. I just realized it when I got in there on that first day in the 100th and seniority and I looked around. There was nobody with the science voice, nobody who's a clinician, nobody who had been a nurse. And then in, in 2001, anthrax hit. So all of a sudden, that became important. 14 people had died. Mysterious. Was it bioterrorism? The heart building shut down. And then two years later was SARS, 2003. Only doctor in the Senate. SARS, which we all remember, you know, came again sort of out of, out of China, closed down the Canadian economy, caused a fall in GDP here. Really, it was ultimately in 29 countries, but nowhere near the deaths that we have seen with the current pandemic. So around 2005, the year or two years before I left, I basically said, based on what, what I see, we need to have what I called a Manhattan Project preparing for the next pandemic. And it's been, it was interesting for me at the beginning of this pandemic that what I did is I pulled all those old papers and speeches from 2005. And literally, I gave the same speech in a different shape or form 20 different times across the country. And what it was is a call for a Manhattan Project of the 21st century to be pandemic preparedness. I talked about where it would come from, China. I talked about the, the fact that it would be global in impact, that it would be existential in its devastation. And I really didn't get the traction. I was majority leader. And, you know, you, you would hope that as majority leader, people would say, OK, this guy's got something. But it never had the, the traction. Some good things came out of it. We did BARDA which is playing a very important role now, and some things were picked upon, but we never prepared for that pandemic. And just to give you a little bit of a flavor of the sort of things that, that were in that speech, I would talk about the communication, I'd talk about the stockpiles, would talk about the all the things we haven't seen, the importance of manufacturing, have manufacturing capacity up. And the first thing I talked about was this whole idea of what you started with. Um, number one, and I've learned this from anthrax before, and to a certain extent SARS, because I took a Senate delegation, bipartisan delegation over to China during SARS or April, SARS hit maybe February in 2003. I'd taken them over there at that point in time, and I saw the lack of communication there, but how important. So my first point for this Manhattan project that I designed in 2005 on pandemic preparedness, was that we needed to ensure an effective, a coordinated, a trusted, consistent communication, either plan or person, from the highest levels of government. And we've failed there. President Trump failed. The power of a president in a situation like this is to communicate and to be taken seriously and have people listen. And, you know, we have failed. We have, as a country, have failed through President Trump. He too early politicized some of the early best tools that we had for limiting the viral spread mask. You know, he made it a red state Republican issue. If you wear a mask, you know, you're weak in some some way. False information, the wrong COVID-19 treatments, undermining the career of, of the scientists of themselves, you know, downplaying the severity of it. So my number one thing that I left the Senate preaching and, and pleading for and going around the country was to have effective communication, and that was the first uh, failure. I'll say, just jumping ahead, at the state level, I had a governor here, and when you asked why I became so vocal, he was a very good friend, I'll, I'll say. I'm in Tennessee. We're a red state, have a Republican governor, 
Republican legislature, but our governor would not issue a state mandate for masks. Even after Deborah Burks had come and spoken with him repeatedly, right? And she did a great job. I didn't, I wasn't in town when she was here, but did a great job outlining, telling very directly. And still, at that time, we were climbing rapidly. And our governor just decided not to do a mandate. He let the 89 counties, for which he has responsibility, just to do what they wanted to do. So being in a red state, our government would not issue a mandate. We had a president minimizing masks. Our county mayors would call me, you know, an old has-been politician, political figure, and tell me, well, the president of the United States says masks are not important. And our governor, and I love him, and he's a great governor, but he, and he would say he believes in masks, but he doesn't believe in a mandate. And therefore, the county mayor says, with those two people above me, how in the world am I going to go out to my populace and say you have to wear a mask? Yeah, because they get creamed by their local businesses. They get creamed by the local opposition. And so our incidents went up and our people were not wearing masks in our, our rural areas and it skyrocketed. And we had hundreds of people die unnecessarily because of that. So the why is that I use social media and I use my podcast, uh, A Second Opinion, and I would go out and not be, I wouldn't be critical, but explain to people why based on science. Do you get blowback? Oh, of course you do, because for the same reason. But the blowback's not bad. I mean, if you're, when you're majority leader of the United States Senate, you have half the, the country hates you and half of them love you. And I'm so used, to, used to that already. So, you know, whether the blowback was important or not, not from the physicians, not from the science-based community. But it, it comes back to exactly what you said. And this is where we failed. I think we had a couple of big failures in, in the pandemic. But your typical person didn't know who to trust when they had had from the highest offices of the land communication of misinformation, not science-based, putting down scientists, uh, pushing aside the CDC, um, you know, it's tragic. Andrew, jump in. Yeah, thanks, Steve. You know, Senator, it's interesting you talk about communication because when Steve and I had John Barry of Tulane University, my alma mater, the author of the, you know, great book on the Spanish flu, we asked him, you know, what's the most important lesson we needed to learn? And he said, it's about communication and it's about communication from the government. And the government has to be able to tell the truth. This pandemic has been catastrophic for Americans by almost any measure. You know, in your view, and I think you've alluded to this a little bit, but in your view, how do you explain this epic failure? And is it a matter of national leadership weakness? Is it a matter of weakness in our public health and medical systems, dysfunctional political culture, all of the above? Is a perfect storm of all of the above? You know, I would say it's a perfect storm if, and I'm sure John did the same thing, if you go back and read what I wrote. And I, I, when I was telling you all that about what I wrote, uh, this is this was common sense based on science. This wasn't like, you know, I had this crystal ball, knew it was going to happen. It's inevitable if you understand science, what these viruses do. These viruses come, they're cagey, they're smart, they're moving a million times faster than we do, and the cells in our body do, and they're gonna always outsmart you. And so it, it's inevitable, but the blind eye to science and that inevitability without a, a narrative, without a voice, without a trusted source, means you're not gonna see the snake over in the bush. You might see them when they get to your feet, but you're not gonna see them over in the bush. And 
the, the trust issue is important, and it's not just the president of the United States. It's the county mayor is going to look to the governor, is going to look to the region, and going to look to the president. If we're going to change culture around it, you're going to look to your pastor. You're going to look to your doctor. You're going to look to your community leader. You're going to look to the people that you admire. And so all of those people needed to step out and were stepping out, but it was hard to do when at the very top, when there were press conferences, you were getting this misinformation every day. I spoke about the, you know, these masks on my podcast and on social media for no other reason than it was clearly the right, right thing to do. I wanted to get the best science, the best evidence out there possible to the public uh, to save lives. And it wasn't about politics, and it was being politicized, but it was about our public health. And, and so it's easy to blame just our, our government for it. But, you know, it, in truth, it took lots of community organizations coming together in spite of our government. And I pivoted a a collaborative that we have here called Nashville Health. And I'm chairing the board, but it's a collaborative of of community health leaders, of public health infrastructure, of healthcare companies. And we pivoted totally. We stopped our underlying agenda and then focused it uh, totally on COVID-19. So it goes throughout. But, you know, your question, I guess, really is for who do I having been in the United States Senate, having been on the health committee and the finance committee and in the Senate, been there with divided government back in 2001 under 50-50, had the opportunity to be leader of the United States Senate. If I had to list them, I'd say, number one, we have a underfunded public health system. You mentioned public health has always been in Washington, the stepchild of health funding. It was sort of the afterthought coming through. It wasn't the snake at your feet, using my example. It was the snake off in the bushes or in the trees. And the facts are there. The American people are not aware of it because nobody's telling them that. But, you know, if you look at even since the uh, Great Recession back, you know, 12, 13 years ago, if you look at the frontline state and local health departments, they've lost 56,000 positions because of funding cuts. People don't know. These are the people we depend on now. Everybody's talking about getting vaccines in the arms, figuring out where, you know, where these fires are. We don't have the people on the ground now to do it. It's why they're not going 24-7 now. Yes, we got the supply issue, but it's because even just in the last 12 years, we've lost 56,000 people in your local areas. And people say yes, and I've talked to a lot of senators, and we did a hearing on pandemic preparedness with Lamar Alexander back about two months ago. And, you know, the response to the senators, yes, but we've increased CDC funding every year. And look at what we've done. But where does the funding go? It goes to the it's things that have been added on the CDC. And if you look at things specific to state and local health preparedness, which is what you care about, you know, what's happening in your environment, what I care about here in Middle Tennessee, you know, what's going to happen in this local area. If you look just from this little period from 2003 to 2020 or 2019, if you just go through that period, it has been cut by about a third the amount of money that go to state and local health departments. Cut a third over that period of time of all money going to the state. And so, yes, in the aggregate, a lot of money has been spent, but it hadn't been spent where it's actually going to be useful. I think the communications thing I'd add to it, Andrew, that you we, you mentioned it at the highest level. I was on, on my podcast the other day. I was interviewing and talking about a recent Cornell study that found that the president President Trump was the leading source of COVID misinformation of all other sources out there. And you probably saw that. 
And then the obvious things that I, I talked about a lot back in 2005 when I was giving all those speeches, and that were supply chains and, and the national stockpile failures. And the supply chains, which is what we're seeing now with the shortages of syringes and the needles and all to get the vaccines in our arms, that had not been pressure tested at all. And any sort of preparatory plan has to have pressure testing or you're just starting from scratch in a chaotic world. The stockpiles had not been maintained at all. A lot of confusion about who is responsible for what. A lot of good things were done at the federal level. A lot of good things were done in terms of pulling scientists together, and, and we can talk about those. I guess the last thing, and I'll, I'll quit rambling, is the testing failures early on. If we really look back and do an after-action review, the early testing failures, everybody knows about the CDC. We did not develop a reliable test. And we go back and look at that. Uh, that was used as the excuse by others just to put the CDC aside, which was a mistake. But there are certain things like we didn't look to what other countries were using as tests. On my podcast, I interviewed four Chinese scientists, I think in, in February, and they had already developed all these tests. And our, our sort of FDA and CDC approach was to throw those aside. Universities had tests. Vanderbilt, all sorts of tests around, but they couldn't get those tests into the system because people said, no, the CDC has to develop it. There was no adaptation of the technology from, from other countries. And then we had this minimization of testing where the president said, you know, stop testing because it makes us look worse. <laughs> if there's a fire in a forest, you got to know where it is. And you're not going to know where it is if you can't do the test. So with all this that we now know and that we're now learning, is this a chance for us to break the cycle of crisis and complacency and be able to really build the right system to respond going forward? You know, it does, but it has to be done. It can't be one senator like even the majority leader. And I say this using my example. I failed. I failed to it. So we got to do something different. The optimist in me, and again, I'm out of the you know, elective office. This says, yes, we will see a change. We will be more prepared next time. We now understand how important global surveillance is. And we need to be looking all over the world because we have now seen that these viruses are cagey. They're fast moving. They, they are transmissible. And now that we understand that, you can say America first and you can say we can you know, isolate to this country and all, but you can't with viruses. Viruses don't know, they don't need visas and, and they don't have passports. And they come and they come fast. I think secondly, we've learned this importance of communication, but it's not just communication. It's got to be science-based, this appreciation from science. And it means we have to to go through, whether it's vaccine hesitancy or we have to go through the other cultural distrust of science. But at the top level, we have to have that sort of support and have that the basis of communication. I guess the third area that, just thinking about it, where I'm more optimistic now than before is technology. It, technology has improved. If you read my works and body of stuff that I wrote in 2005, it took a vaccine to make a vaccine from beginning to end, it takes seven years. And the fact that we were able to make a vaccine, have it out in nine months, that we're using techniques instead of growing viruses in eggs, where you just have to wait to make them, that you can make them in a laboratory using messenger RNA, using genetic detection and rapid vaccine development. So when you put all that together, and, you, and my answer is purposely not just, well, the 
you know, Senate pass a big preparedness bill, because that's not going to do it. It's going to take this intersection of technology, of communication, of global surveillance, all coming together. And from the audience, when I would speak with at CSIS or in the board meetings on CSIS, and it's been, I don't know, 15 years since I, I've been on the board there. But I would couch this that this really comes down to health security is national security. And then we must treat it as such. In less than a year, we spent more in this COVID response and relief packages than we did in all the Iraqi war. And had we invested in public health, like we invested in, in national security, we would be in a different position today. But lots of good things have, have happened. And I have never seen in my 12 years in the Senate and four years as majority leader, Congress acting so quickly. Our United States Congress, in the most partisan of times, probably in you know the last 30 to 40 years, with three stimulus and COVID-19 response bills passed in March, and then a fourth one in April, then a fifth one in December. I've never seen that body move so fast. And it's not like a billion dollars or $50 billion. That's $4 trillion, yes, of taxpayer money, but $4 trillion spent through five consecutive bills to respond. And it saved our country. It saved our economies and our society. And now you have the $1.9 trillion next package, uh, of which $400 billion going towards the COVID response. And that, in a way, you could say what Biden's proposed in the national strategy. He comes into office the first day, releases a national strategy, the first national security directive, number one, about health security. It creates a big structure within the White House. He's calling for a very muscular, national-led, FDR-style wartime mobilization. In some ways, it's what you were talking about in 05 on steroids, right? I mean, it, it's what we should have done to prepare ourselves long-term, but it is extremely expensive and it's going to take, it's going to take a massive mobilization. What do you think about this plan? Have you taken a look at it and what, what's your thought? Yeah, you know, Steve, you're exactly right. If you look at it, it's a comprehensive plan and, you know, everything in there probably doesn't have to be included, but you're right. The, the sort of $400 billion, much stronger national leadership, you look at the, the investments that are in there and then you put it side by side to where we were 20 years ago, exactly 20 years ago, it, it lines up almost perfectly to that. More importantly than that, it goes back to a number of reports that, that are out, but I co-chair a, a group of bipartisan health experts, not too far from where you are, at the Bipartisan Policy Center, which you work with frequently. And we sure. just released last week a COVID-19 response plan that aligns with almost all of what the Biden administration strategy is. And we, we detailed recommendations in six areas that are almost parallel to his. It was testing and contact tracing. It was vaccine transparency. It was surge capacity. It was supply chain management, like the challenge of getting vaccines in our arms today. Racial disparities was one of the six categories that we put down. Another was state and, and local provider funding. And I will say for people who are interested in that, it's on the website, bipartisanpolicy.org. No, it's a very solid piece of work and very timely. Yeah. And the point is the Biden proposal is comprehensive. It is a, a lot of money. I think most of the debate right now is you know going to be on targeting it. And in the targeting of it, that can be settled in a compromising bipartisan way, which 
is the way ideally it, it is done. But I think the investment in state and local in testing and the comprehensiveness of it in these other areas needs to be maintained. Let's talk a little bit about the variants. You know, the variants are now, they're coming out of, you know, large populations where there's uncontrolled transmission, right? Where you're getting the replication, the mutations. Now they're coming forward and they're creating a whole new dynamic in terms of the urgency of accelerating vaccination campaigns, but also we need genomic sequencing. We need to be at visibility into this. We need to be able to adapt the vaccines and therapies. It's changing the game. Tell us a little bit of your own thinking about this. Not to mention scaring everybody. Yeah, no, that's right. Everybody's asking the questions. I said when I came to, to the Senate that I was the only scientist in the United States Senate, and I was the only doctor in the Senate. It's changed a little bit since then, but that wasn't that long ago. I think it reflects the fact that biology is biology. And it is not surprising that that viruses mutate. It's what you study in 101 biology. We've known forever that viruses mutate to survive. As I mentioned earlier, they move a lot faster than we do. And to make it easy for people, just think about the flu vaccine that we get every year. The flu vaccine, we get it every year in part because we don't know what, what genetic change mutation will be in the, that particular virus. And the flu vaccine that we all get every year, it's outside COVID, is only about 60% effective. In a good year, maybe 70% effective. Why isn't it 100% effective? It's because of mutations. And so this is no different. A virus is, is going to, to survive, is going to keep it mutating. So where does that take us today? The early research with Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are that they provide very strong protection against these COVID-19 variants. Now, in the last few days, there have been, and over in England right now, in South Africa, there are some viruses that may be more deadly, clearly more transmissible. And the one most recently in South Africa is, because it's been talked about a lot in the news the last few days, is that maybe the vaccine does not cover it. The early data does not demonstrate that. That was a very small case study, 40 patients, I think, or 40 viruses. This is the AstraZeneca yeah. case. And, uh, but it does, we do know from the earlier studies that the AstraZeneca actually does protect for serious illness. It does prevent hospitalization with it. It does present death with it. And so we'll have to wait and see. There's no question that viruses can mutate outside of the spectrum of the current vaccines. The neat thing about it, and I mentioned this or implied it with my technology, because of where we are with the genetics today and where we are with manufacture of vaccines today, we can manufacture a vaccine very quickly to capture the latest variant. And that is really encouraging. Unheard of four years ago, could not be done. And it's one of these great things that have happened because scientists have come together all over the world together in an unprecedented way because of, of this pandemic. And just I'll, I'll close and say, a vaccine is not going to decimate, eradicate COVID-19. COVID-19, because it is so transmissible, it is here to stay. It's an endemic residual pandemic. And it will likely require boosters. Again, we don't have the data yet. Is it going to be at three years or five years or 10 years or a whole new vaccine on an annual basis? We don't know. The good news is we have that technology today where you can titrate it up, titrate it down, get it manufactured quickly that we just didn't have you know, a handful of years ago. I want to switch 
tracks a little bit because, you know, there's been so much going on. And while you were Senate Majority Leader, two Capitol Police officers, Jacob Chestnut and John Gibson, were murdered by a violent intruder. The January 6th violent insurrection on the Capitol must have really hit you in a profound way. What was it like for you on January 6th when you saw all that? You know, for me, it was very personal. And it was very personal as I saw my colleagues who at that time were people were coming into that seat of democracy, that heart of democracy, and being pulled away by the security. So I had those reactions and the reactions that everybody does today when they, they see it on the screen in their social media. It did take me back to 23 years ago now when a man came into the Capitol and assassinated essentially two security guards who were charged with protecting who put their lives on the line every day at the Capitol. And they came in and shot him in the head, and they shot him in the chest. And I was the only physician in the Senate, and therefore I got called early and was one of the first people on the scene and uh, was involved in the resuscitation, attempted resuscitation, even with the shooter, though I didn't know it was the shooter, I went to the hospital with him, keeping him alive in the ambulance. I didn't know that at the time he was the shooter, but but that would so. At that day, I, I remember very vividly coming on the front side of the Capitol and looking up and seeing the American flag with blood and death and destruction and violation all before us and, and me. I mentioned that because that's what came back in a wholly, wholly different way, but it was at the same place. It was the same sort of, of death people who are protecting our democracy every day in a needless sort of way. The shooter back then was mentally ill. So whenever I talk about this story, I wrote an article in Forbes in 2018 on the 20th anniversary, and the article was really about mental illness, and as well as, as our, our people protecting us in the Capitol and our police, just to give that sort of respect, but also to, to focus on, on that. The difference here, of course, is that this was a riotous, violent, physical confrontation, lawlessness, a mob-like mentality, anarchy being tolerated. But the fact that it was happening in that setting brought it at home. And, you know, what can you do about it? We'll see how things play out. But uh, we have to have this zero acceptance and a appropriate prosecution for that sort of behavior. It was truly astonishing. I mean, anybody who's ever worked up on Capitol Hill and, and just spent any time up there, you know, and is in awe of the place. And to see people trash it that way and kill others and kill others who are really trying to protect democracy, it's something we'll never forget. We'll just never forget it. Yeah. And I think the, the images back from 23 years ago in the Capitol, our, our fallen officers there, both of whom died, were also had a very similar similar ceremony to the, the uh, one of two nights ago. And the solemnity right, around them, yeah, was um, again brought back in in the you know the same place, the same Capitol where Lincoln and our presidents have lain in state. The sort of significance of this in a in a, more than a symbolic way, in a way that really needs to cause a lot of self-examination at the same time that we have, you know, a pandemic coming on and, and racial issues being discussed, a lot going on to, today. But it, it uh, struck, I don't know, everybody's heart who are involved in public service and observers around the world. 
Well, Dan, now we have the impeachment trial starting, and we have the whole bloodletting and identity crisis of the Republican Party itself, right? We had the drama just unfold over Representative Liz Cheney, the drama over Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. It really calls into question, like, does the Republican Party have a future? What's your answer to that? Yes, you know, when we're in the, in the middle of, of these sorts of crises, and it is, is a, a crisis, there is a, a tendency, and it's probably human nature, it's probably evolutionary, to basically say, woe is me, it's all over. And I think it takes a, a stepping back. So I think the Republican Party is going to recover. And I think if you just go to 10,000 feet, not even 30,000 feet, you've got to remember that even though Biden won the presidency, you know, clearly with a huge margin and Democrats took back the Senate by a narrow margin, 50-50, that three months ago, the GOP exceeded all expectations in, in 2020. Most had predicted a blue wave. Democrats actually lost seats in the House and in the states. The GOP held control of almost all of the state legislative bodies and, and governor's offices. They gave Republicans outsized influence over the congressional and legislative redistricting process, you know, the redrawing of the maps that happens, you know, once in a, in a decade and begins next year or maybe later this year. Trump grew his base, and you can say for better or for worse, depending on what you're thinking, but grew a Republican base receiving 10 million more votes than he did in 2016. And that's at sort of 10,000 feet. I know you come back and you say, yes, but look what's happened since. But I think it's important to look at history also when we say, is the Republican Party going to fall apart? So Republicans lost a national election. It's natural that a political party go through a, a period of soul searching and internal turmoil. That's at least what history has shown us. At this point in time, I think the party is in search of a leader. For the last four years, it was Donald Trump. But I think the, the promotion of conspiracy theories and actions on January 6th have damaged his reputation and credibility for many within the party. And out of all that turmoil, we're going to see a battle play out for who and what faction will lead the party going forward. But it's not going to be in, into the party. And we do see, you know, the, exactly what you mentioned with Representative Liz Cheney. On the one hand, you have the House of Representatives say, keep her in. And then back at home, she's having challenges. That's not unexpected. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's kind of, I look at it the same way that, that President Trump sort of said all Democrats are, you know, way off to the left and out of, totally out of the mainstream and you demonize them, that there'll be a lot of that going on by certain people today as well, in terms of Democrats saying that Marjorie Taylor Greene is the heart of the Republican Party. Again, a, a gross exaggeration, not that they're doing that, but I think that's what we're saying. And and I took us back to 10,000 feet, and I think we probably need to go to 30,000 feet just to get a little distance on it. The Republican Party will come back and rebuild. Is that what you think is going on, though? Is that, you know, that it's a battle for the soul and that there's, you know, going to be someone ultimately in the Republican Party that steps forward like a Liz Cheney? you know, that that brings the party closer to the center, because it seems to me that, you know, a lot of those votes and a lot of the, you know, what was held in the Republican Party isn't about things like QAnon and isn't about, you know, extremism. It's about people who want a better life and people who want to see their government work for them. It seems to me that, you know, th there's room for a centrist Republican Party, just like there's room for a centrist Democratic Party. 
Well, there is. I, you know, that's exactly that's what I was trying to say. That it's not these extremes. That there is a huge demand, at least in whether it's Tennessee or whether it's up in Virginia, where I spend time, or I travel around the country. There's a huge demand. In some ways, we're seeing it play out right now. President Biden has got this issue of Democrats, and he's he is center left. You know, he I've worked with him for 12 years every day. The president of the United States is the real thing. And I don't agree with him. I'm Republican, don't agree with him a lot of approaches, but he's not an extremist and he does compromise. And I was on his committee's foreign relations committee and sat with him every day and watched him work uh, with leaders. But his party is probably going to be pulling really hard to go to the left. Now, I have no idea where he's going to end up. And history will only show that. I think the Republican Party will be the same way. But yeah, but for people to categorize the Republican Party as all either one faction, whether it's Trumpist or anti-Trumpist, to me, is going to be short-sighted. I think. I don't know that. I think. Just my observation of history that you have these ebbs and tides that go. And this is a you know pretty, pretty deep ebb, I'll agree. But they will come back. I mean, we have the reality that January 6th was a thunderclap moment, right? It's something that's going to be in the history books for the next couple of hundred years as an epic moment in U.S. history. And the party itself has, you know, has not come to terms with, with this at all. And when you have 140, whatever it was, 147 members of House and Senate vote right afterwards, it, it leaves a pretty shocking legacy there when you talk about accountability. And it's not just whether you have some very fringy character like Green get into the House and then that eruption. It's really about where the party stands on things like violent insurrection directed against the Capitol of the United States. And, and we're going to see that drama play out, and obviously, in the impeachment trial this week. Yeah, Steve, I think it, it will be interesting. I think the impeachment trial, that's going to probably take a whole lot more, as you know, than that. I have no idea how that'll play out. The discussion will be around that. And I, I see real parallels in where we, we were talking, you know, 20 minutes ago on the pandemic, when you asked the question, are you optimistic? Are we going to come out of this correcting the things that we know We've had this huge light shine on it in the pandemic, and that includes, you know, lack of mental health, you know, treatment in this country and physical, social, medical disparities and health disparities, which this pandemic has uncovered. Are we going to recover from that? Is is the light been bright enough and deep enough and embedded enough to change behavior? And I think January 6th is going to be exactly the same thing. You know, what have we learned? What does it tell us about who we are, not as Republicans or Democrats, but as Americans? And it does remain to be seen. It's a much bigger issue than the Republican Party, though. What's giving you the most hope and optimism, though, in general, Senator? I mean, and, and I do want to say, though, before we leave, y'all who are listening out there, you, you need to listen to Senator Frist's podcast because it's got the best stuff in there. And I'm telling you, go listen to Second Opinion. But that's just a plug for you. But what is giving you the most hope and optimism looking into the future? We've got a lot of problems. We're facing them. What do you see on the horizon? Yeah, I think and it's so ironic to even to start this way. But I think if you look at the positive things that have come out of the greatest existential threat that we've seen in, I don't know, 40 years, maybe 100 years with this pandemic, and you forget sort of 90% of what we've talked about to today in terms of it's been tough. 
people, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died and many probably have died unnecessarily. And you step back and see the beauty, the magic, the people coming together with unity, regardless of party. And it's in the United States, it's also globally. And that's not what you see in the news and it's not what you talk about sort of in, even in green rooms or on, on uh, television today. I mentioned one. Our Congress moved faster than ever, bipartisan, together, with the single greatest investment of including any recent war in history, with trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars coming forward, accomplishing things, not just government, not just government dollars, but putting that dollars in the private sector to make sure that that vaccine is free to give a stimulus to the vaccine manufacturers. So instead of taking two years to manufacture it, they could go out and manufacture it today. So that's one big bucket that people say, well, Congress is a dead structure and it's not gonna work the way it is and we gotta blow it up and get rid of the filibusters and change all the rules. And I just want to say that with the biggest insult that I've seen, assault, that Congress has responded really, really positively. If you look at the issue of science coming together, and you'll say, well, science is a whole different world, but it's not a whole different world. Without science today, this vaccine would not be developed, and we would really be back in destruction of jobs and food on the table and people's homes and destroyed totally. And we've seen scientists come together in a, in a way that I've never seen before. I've been involved in really interesting fields like transplantation, where we relied on global science. But never have I seen the private sector of scientists working with the public sector, mainly for resources, and then working with each other over borders, over, you know, across borders. I mentioned one of my earlier podcasts was with four, four Chinese doctors before COVID had even really come to this coast, unheard of uh, years ago. And then I think we will see more attention to this relationship of federal government, state government, and local government. I think enough has been exposed there that we can't just rely on the federal government, can't just rely on Washington, D.C., that we must rely on our governors, and our governors have a responsibility to our, our local mayors, and that sort of vertical integration leads me to be optimistic going uh, ahead, in spite of all the bad things that we know that is facing Washington now and facing people in their homes today. That's fantastic. Senator, thank you so much for being with us here today. Really fascinating discussion. Thank you, Bill. Great to catch up. Andrew, thank you. Steve, thank, thanks a million. 